Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11. I have the passage on the insert as well with a short outline. In our regular study of Isaiah throughout the year over these past months, uh, we've been studying through and we came to chapter 11 right at the beginning of Advent. So I've stayed in chapter 11 because it is the clearest uh, passage about the coming Messiah yet in the book. Chapter 7 reveals uh, the Messiah's coming. And chapter 9 for sure gives it a vivid uh, depiction of who the Messiah is and how he would function. But now chapter 11, the whole of the, the passage, lays out Messiah's ministry. And remember when Isaiah the prophet writes, and this is a general rule that's true of all the prophets, they receive a vision from God, revelation from God, and they bring the message to the people as they are instructed to do. They are not often given a timeline or the order of how this will all work itself out in history. So Isaiah is giving to a people in need of encouragement because of such failed leadership in their lifetime. They, are needed, they need encouragement of the encouragement of God that he'll bring a leader who will not fail in this way. And so he gives the picture of who Messiah is, and it's, it's very holistic as we see when we move through the text. Some of it's been fulfilled since the time of Isaiah, through the time of Jesus' coming as the king, even though it was humbly, when he came, the kingdom began. But it's an ongoing building project that God is working to consummation. And Isaiah sometimes gives the whole picture of that victory together, uh, and we can't see the disconnect or the time between the different things that the Messiah fulfills. But isn't it true and isn't it timeless that we always are in need of encouragement in the face of failed leadership. Why? Because as long as the world has existed, this side of the fall of man, the entrance of sin, man has not been able to, be, uh, to give faithful leaders to itself. Uh, we are constantly failing in leadership on the big scale of nations, empires, kingdoms, but even on the smallest scale of just being a father, how much I fail at leadership. I am unable in my humanness even as a redeemed person who trusts in Christ, to eliminate sin from my decision-making, from the leadership that I provide. I am not able to bring peace with my knowledge. I'm not able to bring justice. I can't know the truth completely. I, I do my best, but I fail. And even the best human leadership has failed over the years and the centuries. And so this picture of the one leader who leads and who reigns now, but will reign in a full exposure of God's glory eventually, he's not like us. He's the God-man, and he is the king we need. And this is the picture painted for us. And sometimes the way a passage of Scripture is best applied to our life, you know, what do we do as a result of this truth? Sometimes a passage's best gift to us is to simply elevate our view of God, lift our view of the Savior to help us see what is true and timeless and eternal and what we have in him, and that will help us love him more, and it will bring more devotion to our lives, obedience to the one who has saved us and reigns over us in all things. With that in mind, let's hear now as I read the first 10 verses. It is our goal over these four weeks to complete all 16 verses of Isaiah 11, but we will today look at verses 3 through 5. I'll read 1 through 10 for context. Hear God's holy, inspired and an errant word. There shall come forth a shoot 
from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, the picture that Isaiah paints of Messiah is soothing to a people who long for righteous leadership. Lord, with all the injustice, all the conflict, all the oppression and war, we need Jesus to bring peace and fairness. Peace with you first, because we are sinners. We need reconciliation with you first. And then, between mankind, between people, justice for the oppressed, relief from suffering. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge your kingly rule from the right hand of your Father now. Fill us with your Spirit that we might truly and effectively be your hands and feet on earth. Please expand your influence and impact on people. Please do this through your church, even now, as we await your final and ultimate coming. Forgive us for our lack of belief and our tendency to be downcast about the way things are. Give us a heavenly perspective as we consider King Jesus in the kingdom that you are building even now. Give us peace knowing that you are working your plan to perfection, even in times of distress. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were to look at the history of the rulers of earth, a very interesting study indeed, one that I have endeavored uh, to partake in many times, just intrigued by the way certain individuals are able to have influence and impact and power. And as a believer who believes in what the Scripture says, I know that God's providence lies behind it. We have even learned that about Assyria, haven't we? Assyria thinking itself to be powerful, taking over the known world, we find out that underneath it's really the providence of God. And we know that to be true. But if you were to just, in a vacuum, 
not considering the reality of God's providence. Consider those various leaders of earth. And then try to pick the ones that are the most effective, the ones that are held up as being the great leaders. You think first of Alexander the Great, right, in all that he accomplished, uh, conquering much of the known world at that time, from Greece to Egypt, India. Uh, Far-reaching impact from a relatively young man who died by the time he was 33. Yet what really attends much of his rule is similar to that which has attended the rule of many great leaders. War. Uh, war and oppression and things that were unjust brought to the people who were there living. For all the greatness, there is always that other side because he's a human being, no matter how great we may consider him to be. Julius Caesar started uh, really the, the Roman Empire as it's well known and remembered. He was a military commander who ascended to be the emperor. He was known for his genius on the battlefield, but he was also known for his genius as, as a shrewd politician who worked things into certain angles probably second only to Alexander and his ability to expand an empire. But his arrogance ultimately cost the lives of many, many soldiers and even civilians. His dishonesty set a precedent that would be followed for the generations of Roman leadership. Again, war and violence, injustice, oppression, all these things attend even someone who we paint as a great leader. Napoleon rose to power after a violent national revolution, shrewd and cunning, He was a genius as it related to taking small armies and gaining great victories. He was thought of as a friend to the common man, but even in light of that label, he still brought lots of problems and oppression and difficulty for the people, passing laws that really worked to deteriorate the biblical model of family and marriage. Again, he wearies his armies with his arrogance trying to expand too much, seeking too much with too much ambition. And though he's considered a great leader, we can see his many, many flaws. Even in our own country, we've had some great leaders for sure, at least on this scale of greatness. Think of Washington and what he accomplished. Later, in some similar ways, Roosevelt. You have these two individuals who lead the country through a time of war and tumult. Yes, I know there's complexities in books upon books written about them, but there's, a, there's an amazing amount of parallel. I mean, Washington was so popular, he could have been made king, some said, which is kind of ironic. And Roosevelt was elected four times in a row. That's how much people thought of him. But both of their lives had inconsistencies in them. We would not show, say they were righteous rulers or completely fair. They didn't eliminate injustice in their reign. Some ways they promoted it. If you were a slave living under Washington, you wouldn't have thought of it as a just time. If you were a Japanese-American under Roosevelt, you wouldn't think justice had come. It's really unfortunate, but the greatest of our leaders have these flaws. There is no way we can think of any one leader who really depicts righteousness. There is only one leader. This is why when Isaiah paints the picture of the ruler to come, Messiah, the one who has come from our perspective, he is the only one who offers this kind of peace, this kind of justice. And he delivers it slowly but surely in his own way and over eternity's time, but he sure enough will bring it even in our own time, in the time of man. We'll see it. Maybe not with our own eyes from the earth, but we will when he raises everyone again. It's a short period of time all of us live, but he will bring this all to pass in a way that no leader has before. There's always war and injustice, and the greatness 
that we ascribe to people is usually a sign because they are able to make a slight dent in one of them. Just a little relief of injustice, just a little stoppage to war, and we would grant that person a great status. Our standard for peace and justice is low because it's so rarely observed in any leaders we have seen. We've been blessed living in this country for a long time. We have not experienced the same kinds of oppressions and injustice so many of the people live the world over. We're going to see a theme here that will repeat in Isaiah, repeats in the scriptures. It's the connection between injustice and poverty and the poor and the meek and those who are downcast. It's difficult for us sometimes to get a full picture of that as Americans, but there is that injustice and there is poverty that exists even in our own society and midst, and we should be aware of it because God makes us so aware of it in his word. And there are very stark examples in the scriptures, especially those who were dealing with the suffering that came from the injustice of failed kings and leaderships. Most human leaders have exhibited terrible deficiency. Many have displayed outright treachery. That's what was known by the Israelites, even their own kings and the kings of the nations around them. Power, it corrupts. And a person unchecked can be a destructive force. Alec Moyer, who I quote on the insert, said wisely, setting up the essence of these two verses, three and five, and part of verse two as well, leading into verse three, He summarizes it this way, in David's line, king after king had failed, whether by character defect or administrative ineptitude. In this king, that is Jesus, the Messiah, the one he's forecasting, in this king, character and rule are in total harmony. Said another way, unlike every other human leader in the sorry length of our history, Jesus is literally qualified to rule the world. Why is Messiah's reign depicted in this way? Why is it characterized in this way? Well, the verses reveal this. Verses 2 down to verse 5. First, we see that Messiah's reign is marked by delighting in the fear of the Lord. We might say this is the most essential element of faithful leadership that there is. That that leader would delight in the fear of the Lord. Of the Lord. There's something profound and personally distinct about Jesus compared to every other leader or ruler in history. He delights in the fear of the Lord perfectly. And how so? Well, in the opening verses, uh, we examined them last week and we see the Messiah King to be human and divine by his attributes revealed. The Messiah King would have a special guidance from the Holy Spirit to fulfill his mission, and to provide us with an example of the Spirit's work through those united to Christ. Look at verse 2. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might. And here's the phrase that connects us to today's subject matter. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So the Spirit of God rightly works the fear of the Lord The Spirit of the Lord rested upon Jesus when he came. The baptism that he received from John wasn't for the forgiveness of sins. The baptism Jesus received was to officially begin his earthly mission and ministry. What happened at his baptism connects with what Isaiah wrote 700 years before in Matthew, recording this baptism of Jesus. He says, when Jesus was baptized... 
Immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. God hadn't said anything that affirming since creation itself when he was pleased, when he saw that it was good. Now his eternal son comes to take the mantle of the king, the king who would have to suffer and die for his people, but would lead his people and would restore all things unto the Father. And it's described here as the Holy Spirit descending and resting upon him. That's what we have in verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Oswald, the commentator, says this kind of understanding that will be displayed by Christ will not be an intellectual grasp on its own, but rather it will spring forth from this fear of God. It will spring forth from what he describes as an experiential knowledge of the one who is true. That's another way of describing what it means to fear the Lord. It's to know the one who rules is true and to experience that and and be set in place by that. It, it sets our pace, if you will, to have this fear. It says in the first part of verse 3, continuing the thought, and his delight, that is his contentment, his joy, his pleasure, would be in the fear of the Lord. And we think of fear, we usually don't connect that to pleasure. It's, it's an emotion or a reaction that's terrifying to us. That's how we think of fear. And surely for someone who is an unbeliever, confronted with the presence of Almighty God, There is a right fear or there is a being scared of, terrorized by the judgment that God can pour out on us. That's the kind of fear uh, that scares us. That's not the fear of God spoken of here. Not the fear we should have in Christ, and it's not the fear of God that Jesus delighted in, rather for the believer. The fear of God is something far different than this. The believer's fear is a right and healthy reverence for who God is. And it's also accompanied with a knowledge that we are in him. He is the all-powerful one, and we acknowledge this. And it it puts us in awe. We fear God in this sense, but we also recognize our place in him because of Christ. Jesus, knowing his mission from the Father, knowing who the Father is, delights in the fact that, that God is this all-powerful one, and he delights and he reveres his Father in this sense. And this attends the whole of his ministry as he ascends to the kingship. Understanding the fear of God becomes clearer when the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. You know, reverence and awe is exactly what the fear of God means for Christians, and it's an important part of our understanding of God. We know him to be our father, but we revere him, and we're in awe of him, and we have a proper view of his authority and his omniscience and his, his uh, potency, which is also omni. It's got to be different than the way many people think of God. I remember when I was uh, young, my mom took me and my sister to go see Santa Claus at a local uh, candy store. And I 
didn't think myself to be the baby that I was, but I just freaked out when I got up on the stage with Santa and all these people were looking at me and they're all waiting in line to go ask him for stuff. And I just felt the pressure of it. I don't know, I was five or six years old and I just started bawling. I mean, just started bawling over the Santa Claus and he took me into his lap and I got even more distraught when I saw that his beard was fake. It was like this plastic stuff. Sorry to break it to y'all, but it was fake. And so, oh, he was one of Santa's helpers. I forgot. At any rate, as I was sitting there thinking, what am I going to ask this guy? I'm crying. I'm worried about it. I'm just thinking, and and I calmed down because he kept saying, little boy, little boy, what can I get for you? What do you want for Christmas? What do you want? And he seemed so convincing to me that he would be able to give me anything I wanted. I thought for myself, I can ask him for a lot of stuff. And I started rattling off stuff I knew I'd never really get if I was asking my parents. And so I'm rattling, I just felt like he could give it to me. He sure came off like he could. And I fear that many people have that view towards God, that he's like this cosmic Santa Claus that's just this warm, uh, chubby guy who will just accept you and will tell you that he can give you anything that you want. You ask him for it and he'll deliver it and he has the power to do it. And people think God's like that. And that's why they're so disappointed when their will doesn't materialize. And they misunderstand. They don't have a reverence or an awe for who God is. And our will ought to align with his, not the other way around. In his seminal work, Knowing God, Packer says it this way, One always needs to talk of the goodness and the severity of the Lord. Without that perspective, God becomes some fluffy Santa Claus figure that is no God at all. Proverbs, written by Solomon. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Until we understand who God is and develop a reverential fear of him, we cannot have true wisdom. And true wisdom comes only from understanding who God is and that he is holy, that he is just, that he is righteous and all-powerful. Jesus possesses this kind of wisdom. It says in our passage, And the delight, his delight, shall be in the fear of the Lord. Instead of dread of God, Franz Dalich says that Jehovah is a sweet fragrance to the Messiah. He sees God the Father with satisfaction. We can't see the Father like this apart from the Messiah. The Messiah has this in who he is, the righteous one. We can only have it in the Messiah. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. One direct piece of wisdom we can gain from this is considering who we choose to be leaders if we have that opportunity. When we have the ability to choose a leader, a leader at any level, we ought to look first for the fear of the Lord in them. It's rare. You may not find it in those who are presented. But a man or a woman who fears the Lord will more often than not do the right and just thing. Arrogance, pride, and a haughty spirit are despised by God no matter what their particular positions are. And we shouldn't align with the proud and the arrogant because God opposes the proud but exalts the humble. There's something else we see more actively displayed by the Messiah when he comes. Yes, it is his demeanor that he delights in the fear of the Lord. This is what drives his judgment, his decisions, his discernment, and his actions connected to those decisions. That's what comes next in the text. It says in the second part of verse 3, 
He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. Oh, what do you mean? He's not, he's not going to look for things and, th- and hear things? He has a righteous judgment that comes from whom he is. In his delight in the fear of the Lord fuels his ability to judge perfectly. So the normal means we would have to use as limited creatures, uh, just by seeing a case and hearing a case and then trying to render a decision, he has more than that. He has a greater ability to choose what is right, choose what is wrong, choose what to do as a result. By judgment here, we're talking about discernment. His ability to assess a situation and make the right ruling in his, is in his judgment. That's what his judgment is. Uh, we will be aware of a situation and we know exactly what has happened and what is equitable insofar as resolution or justice is concerned. That's how he's able to do it. We can't. I have to hear a case. I have to listen. To, I have to weigh it. I think of Solomon, you know, when the two ladies came, uh, both claiming the baby to be theirs. And he was super wise. But even he, listening to the case, could not decide. So he came up with a plan uh, to tell them, well, we'll just cut the baby in half and you can both have half. Well, the real mom's going to say no. And that's how he decided. That's, that's ingenious. But, I mean, that's not what we can do. Uh, but he didn't do it by just simply listening and seeing. He had to apply something else to it. And Messiah will be able to, in his own righteousness, in who he is, decide the right from the wrong. And he does that. It's not just that he will do it. He does it all the time. You could count on his justice working itself out in his time. It may not be right before your eyes, but we can't hide anything from him. He sees it all. We can get away with sneaky little lies or deceit before people or human rulers or parents or superiors, but not Jesus. He does not judge according to outward appearances, but he judges according to the relation of the heart to his God. Jesus is not biased in favor of the rich and the powerful. Instead, he concerns himself with what is right, and he knows what is right. His judgment will not be based upon the ordinary sources of information open to us, what we see and what we hear. For absolute justice, as one commentator said, there must be absolute knowledge, one that cannot be derived merely by these two regular and ordinary sources of information. So once again, he's not just the human king, he's a divine king. The Messiah is being revealed as this. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. Now look what he says next because it's important to understand something that's thematic in Scripture and should concern us as Christians today. He says, But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Why are the poor and the meek brought into this? Because the world over, people suffer. They're brought low and into poverty because of injustice. Now, I know it's a complex discussion, especially in America. Uh, we are, tend to think that it must be somebody's fault. There's so much opportunity here that if you're poor, if you're in poverty, it must be something you've done. I hear Christians talk like this. But the reality is Jesus says the poor will always be among us. And there's a sense in which that's a test for us to see how we respond to our own salvation and our privilege in Christ. What do we do about the poor? We don't analyze how they got poor or why they stay poor, but we care about them. And that's the world over, it's a different situation for different people and why their poverty is what it is. But God says, right on the heels of saying there's only going to be one fair ruler, the first thing he does is he addresses the poor, who normally do not have the ability to get themselves justice. 
I'll never forget when I was, uh, twice I've lived in, in among the urban poor, both in college and then in seminary, and then my brother-in-law lives among the urban poor trying to plant churches, and I've talked with him about this many times. We sitting here in middle up, upper middle class, we can fall into some of those same traps of how we think about the poor. We think down upon, especially in America, and we have to be careful of this. I'll never forget when I was in St. Louis, it was right at the time and I lived in a neighborhood among the urban poor, had friends, I worked with them, and we'd talk about various social issues. And I kind of kept quiet for the most part because they knew I was, you know, grew up in a suburb. Although I grew up across from, from HUD housing and had many friends who were also in the same, would be categorized the same way. And I was constantly hearing these different ways of looking at things. And I remember when the O.J. Simpson trial happened. I don't know what it was like for wherever you were, but I could tell you how it was for me as we were watching the verdict unfold. But several of the people said to me, seeing as the only white guy there, they'd say, you know what, it doesn't matter. This, uh, this guy is going to buy himself out of this thing. And they were, they were kind of happy about it because for once, someone in, with their ethnic connection was going to be able to buy the justice that they couldn't buy before. They didn't care about the justice of the case. They were just so sick of all the injustice they thought was bought. And you could not convince them otherwise. And they would have example after example after example of relatives who were wrongly accused or didn't have proper representation. And they believed firmly if you had money, you could buy better, better representation. And frankly, you have to admit to a degree that's true. There's a lot of that still goes on. In the best system in the world still has that kind of thing facing it started to make me think about how is it the world over in places much worse than us. There's no hearing for the poor. There's no ability to get out of their poverty. Some of them are pressed harder into it for the sake of the rest of the society. God knows this. He sees this. He has a view of these things because he sees all these things. And he says that the Messiah's reign will be characterized by fair judgment. In the first thing he says, verse 4, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. In other words, that's something that does not happen much on earth. But in this case, it will with Messiah. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. Wow. It's definitely a cutting tone that we have from the prophet. But it's not unique. If you've read the Bible much in your life, you know there's some extreme language about God's indignation towards sin, towards rebellion against him, unrighteousness. The Bible does not pull any punches when it comes to his view of wickedness. Here, we have just that. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. Boy, that is not a passage that you would put on like the plaque on the front of the church, is it? But you know, that kind of language is prevalent when God is confronted with unrighteous rebellion. And here you have world and earth paralleling. Strike the earth, kill the wicked. The earth and the wicked together used to describe that system opposed to God and the people who adhere to that system, who don't believe? Because if you don't believe, you're not indifferent. You're saying no to God's righteousness. You're rebuking it, as it were. You're an enemy of God. And ultimately, Jesus will bring an end to this rebellion. And he's working to bring an end to this by subduing people to himself. 
As the Spirit of God works to regenerate, to redeem people, he subdues people. He takes them from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. He changes them from enemies to friends of God. But the very word of his mouth is a rod which shatters. The breath of his lips, it's sufficient to destroy. Like the book of Revelation's description, his mouth has a sword that comes forth from it. And he's called faithful and true. Faithful and righteous. If you would do just a perusal of any of the authors in the Old Testament building into the New Testament, you would see a repeated theme here. In Psalm 5, David says that the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. He says of God, you hate all evildoers. People say that God loves everybody, but it says here, you hate all evildoers. And we are evildoers in our own evil until we're placed in Christ, and receive his righteousness. You hate all evildoers. In Psalm 7, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. In Psalm 75, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. The prophet Nahum says that the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is, an aven- is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. And he goes on. That's the truth about God. We do no favors to paint a Santa Claus God. Because Messiah is the king who can discern all these things. And I don't know about you, but when I read this, my response is not, boy, go get him, God. My response is, thank you, God, for saving me from my evil, for placing me in Christ, the perfect and righteous judge, who will not miss anything, who will not be able to angle our way by. Prophet Ezekiel later in the Old Testament says, I will execute, speaking of God, I will execute great vengeance on them with wrathful rebukes. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon them. Everyone will bow. Some will bow because they are forced to in God's wrath, others because they are placed in Christ. But all will bow, and the Messiah King will bring that to reality and truth. He's doing now, well, we have time. He's, the message of the gospel is going forth, and he's subduing people to himself. But there are people who are rejecting it, who are turning away, rebuking it. In Romans it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. John chapter 3, that wonderful chapter that tells us that God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son, often taken out of its context, not well understood. Just 20 verses later says very clearly in John three thirty six, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. We need a just king. We need a fair king. We need a king to bring peace and justice. And that peace must begin first with our indignation towards God because that's bringing the wrath of God upon us. We receive that ultimate peace when we rest in Messiah and he saves us from this. But he'll do more than that. He'll bring peace, actual peace, ultimately when there is no more war, there is no more confrontation, no more injustice that brings poverty and and people being poor and oppressed. This is why Jesus himself says in Matthew 10, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. The God of Scripture is a God of history. 
And God hates evil. He will squash evil and its effects. And Jesus is fully able to make a just and right decision about what is evil, and he's able to bring judgment upon it in order to remove it. And it says here in verse 4 that he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. And as soon as he, the advent occurs, when he comes, as soon as he's revealed publicly and he starts to speak, he doesn't build an audience. It seems like the audience gets smaller as he brings the truth to, to bear on it. It's only after he ascends and there's connection made between how he has fulfilled all that has been forecasted that the church begins to build, that the kingdom starts to grow as the Spirit is sent, the same Spirit that was upon Jesus is sent to his people to develop and grow the kingdom through the preaching of the gospel. It says in verse 5, Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Uh, in antiquity, the belts would have to be worn to hold up various clothing parts. These wouldn't be the only belts that were worn. There were belts on everything to hold it all up. But the two most intimate belts would be that which uh, covered basically their underwear. They didn't have uh, elastic bands, so they had belts. And these belts were for the most basic garments. They'd fit tightest to the body. As one commentator says, his most intimate garments will be righteousness and faithfulness. When you strip away everything else, what do you find? Righteousness and faithfulness. Right and true. You know, as I was reading for this, it struck me, having just taught uh, Revelation in a Sunday school class a couple quarters ago, I'd read through the first several chapters of Revelation in the 19 and 20, and it just is an amazing parallel. I knew this in my general study, but I, it kept coming back to me, the specifics of the passage we just studied in Isaiah and what he says in Revelation. Listen to what he says in Revelation. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. Remember, righteousness and faithfulness are the two things that identify Messiah. And in righteousness, Revelation says, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. The breath and his word spoken like it says in Isaiah. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on, a white, on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. In our passage, with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The result of this kind of leadership will be peace. I know it sounds harsh, the judgment of God, but it requires this to bring real peace. We have not seen real peace this side of heaven because there is not a willingness to put to death sin. But Jesus will do this. He is working this as he saves people to himself and will consummate it when he comes again. Jesus has a passion for justice. One commentator said that his rule will correct the massive wrongs we are forced to accept. Unlike every other human leader, Jesus Christ is clothed not with the trappings of human ego, but with righteousness and faithfulness. Again, I hope the result of hearing and reading a passage like this is to grow our awe of God in our need for repentance 
over our own sin, a realization that we have not ever made ourselves pleasing to God. It's only the grace of God that would make us pleasing to him by applying the righteousness of Christ, the Messiah. By elevating our view of who Jesus is, we will grow in our love for him and our devotion to him. I'll close once again with what Moyer said. In David's line, king after king had failed, whether by character defect or administrative ineptitude. In this king, Messiah, character and rule are in total harmony. And that is exactly what we need. Let's pray. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, give us a higher view of you uh, through Christ. Elevate our perspective of King Jesus and his righteous reign. Give us a renewed fear of you and a confidence in your righteous judgment ultimately having its way. Convict us of our contributions to injustice, to oppression, and the suffering of others. Move us to be sensitive, empathetic, and generous towards others for the sake of the interests of our Savior and King Jesus. Give us relief knowing that true justice will be done. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And Lord, while there is still time, I pray for your Spirit to bring conviction upon those who are not yet saved. And may this time of Advent be a time of proclamation and yet a time of regeneration. I pray this in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us together respond by turning...